Father, we come before you again as we continue in this service, and we ask that you would continue to quiet our minds and our hearts, especially now, Lord, as your word is open before us. I ask that you would help us to shut our mouths, figuratively speaking, and to listen, to listen to what you have to say to us in your word. Lord, as we say again and again, these are your words. You are speaking to your people here in this book, the Bible. May we treat your words as precious, for they are indeed precious. They are more valuable than gold. They are sweeter than honey. They are above all things to be desired. And as we go through this passage, as we look into this Word together, Lord, may the Lord Jesus Christ, above all else, may He shine forth. May we see Him present here in Jonah. May You be with us. May You build Your people up. And may You be with me as I seek to communicate these words to them. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, for most of you, you may remember that last week we began this series in Jonah. So if you are a visitor with us this morning, we began a series in Jonah last week. And the message last week focused primarily on just doing an overview of the book. So we didn't handle any specific verses. So what we're going to begin to do this morning, last week was just talking about some of the main themes that go through the overarching parts of the book. The themes that span from chapter 1 all the way to the end of the book. We focused on that. We focused on how Jonah points us to Christ. We focused on some of the things that make the book of Jonah unique, especially where it's located at in the Minor Prophets. So if you haven't listened to that first message, then I recommend that you do because there are some important things that will continue to come up throughout the series. So please, if you haven't listened to that message, go back and listen to it. Now, this morning we're going to be focusing on verses 1 to 3. That's going to be our passage. That's going to be our text that we are going to be looking at. So if you would, let's read it together. Beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, as we walk through these verses together, there are going to be three questions that we're going to be dealing with. And I'm going to ask you, as we deal with these three questions, and not just these three questions, but as we deal with the book throughout the series, come before these questions and come before this book as if you've never heard it before. 
Now, not literally like you've never heard it before, but coming before it almost as if you are a child coming to it for the first time. I mean, this story, like we were talking about last week, is a very familiar story. Most of all of you, if not all of you, have heard it before, the whole story or just parts of the story. And so it's very easy to come before it thinking that you already know everything about it. I've heard the story before, but please don't don't come before it like that. If you do, you're already missing the point. Come before it like a little child. I mean, this is how we are called to come before God's Word all of the time, whether it's a familiar story or if it's not a familiar story. So I, I ask that you would do that. Now, the three questions that we're going to be considering are these. First question is going to be primarily seen in verse 1, and it's going to be, who is Jonah? So in verse 1, as we are introduced to Jonah, we're going to be asking ourselves, who is this man? Really? Who is Jonah? I mean, you've heard about Jonah since you were a child. You know about Jonah in the well. You know that he runs from God. But I mean, how much do you actually know about this man besides those things? Second question, we're going to see in verse 2. Who are the Ninevites? Again, I know you've heard a lot about the Ninevites, but let's come asking ourselves, who are these people really? The third question, why does Jonah flee and disobey God? We're going to see that in verse 3. So each question is going to come up as we slowly work our way through each of these Three verses. So verse 1, who is Jonah? So as we come to the book of Jonah, and as we read the book as it opens up in verse 1, we're not really given a whole lot of information about Jonah. As you read verse 1, you see this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. So we are given Jonah's name, which is Jonah, and we are given the name of his father or of his dad, which is Amittai, and that's all we're given. And for us, in the 21st century, that really doesn't help us out a whole lot, right? I mean, okay, I know his name is Jonah, and I know who his dad is, or at least I know his name anyways. That helps me about that much. I know his name, I know the name of his dad, but you know, it doesn't really get us very far. And that could leave us being kind of confused. I mean, we come to the beginning of the book where you would think the author's going to tell us more about himself, just give us more a more lengthy description about who he is, things like that, but no, we just get this. And so why? I mean, why don't we get more? Well, you need to remember that this book was not originally written to you. You are not the original audience of Jonah. So when Jonah was written, originally it was written to the people of Israel in Jonah's day. And so when they would have opened this story, when they would have opened this book, and they read, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, I said, hey, I know that guy. I know who Jonah is, and I know who his dad is. I know exactly who he's talking about here. So that's one of the reasons why that we don't really see receive a whole lot of information here. It's not originally written 
to us in the 21st century. So that leaves us having to do a little bit more research. Since we're so many years down the timeline, we have to do a little bit more digging. And luckily, Jonah, the book of Jonah, is not the only time that the man Jonah is mentioned. So if you would turn with me to 2 Kings, the book of 2 Kings, because that's where we again see this man Jonah mentioned. 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 27. Now I'm going to read these verses because within them we get a good bit of information about Jonah the time frame in which he lived, who he was, where he's from, what his occupation was, things like that. So beginning in verse 23 in 2 Kings 14. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not apart from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebate, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo-Hamath. I think I'm pronouncing that right, maybe not. As far as the Sea of the Arabia, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. That's the guy we're looking for right there. The prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that He would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So He saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So within this passage, we find out multiple things about Jonah. Number one, we find out that Jonah lived within the time frame of Jeroboam II. Now some of you may remember who Jeroboam II was. He was the 13th king in the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember at this time... Uh, the nation of Israel as a whole, as a whole, had split in two. You had the northern kingdom, which was Israel, and then you had the southern kingdom, which was Judah. So Jeroboam II was the thirteenth king in the northern kingdom, and this is where Jonah was located, and he was a prophet during this king's reign. He was a prophet. He was a servant of God. He was called to be God's man, to do God's will, to proclaim the word of the Lord wherever the Lord would have him go, wherever he would send him, to whatever people, whatever message he would have him proclaim. That was Jonah's occupation. Now we also see in this passage that Jonah had prophesied prosperity in the time of this king who was wicked. He was a wicked king. The author of 2 Kings at the beginning says, now this king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And not only was this king wicked, but the people of Israel in the northern kingdom at this time were wicked as well. But God, being merciful and gracious, 
shows mercy on Israel. And he prophesies this prosperity through Jonah. So although these people are wicked, he prophesies a message of prosperity, of mercy through Jonah. So not only is Jonah a prophet, but he has firsthand seen the mercy of God on a wicked people. Now you need to keep that in mind. Jonah has seen this firsthand. He has seen God's grace firsthand on a wicked people. So this is the Jonah that received the word of the Lord here in our passage in Jonah chapter 1. This is the Jonah that is presented here in this work. Now in verse 2, what is the word that he receives? So this Jonah receives a word from the Lord. And it says, this is the message that he receives, Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah receives this word, this message. We're not sure if it's an audible message, if God actually, you know, a voice resounds to Jonah, or if Jonah receives this through a vision, through a dream, we don't know. It just says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and this is what it says. Arise, go to Nineveh. Now, who are who are the Ninevites? Where where is the city of Nineveh? Of, of Nineveh, excuse me. Where is Jonah being sent to? Now, again, similar with Jonah, we don't really see receive a whole lot of information about Nineveh. We don't see that they're called that the city's called Nineveh. Apparently, they're evil because in verse two it says God says that their their evil has come up before me. And then also again in chapter 3, God says that, or excuse me, no, never mind, I'm thinking about something else. But we see that their evil, their evil has risen up before God. We also know that the city is a great city. And we see that not only here in verse 1, but again in chapter 3, which was what I was referring to just a second ago. So again in chapter 3, we see that Nineveh is an exceedingly great city. So they are apparently evil. It's an apparently great city. That's what we get here in verse 2. Now remember, like we were talking about a moment ago, the original readers would have known this city. But we, on the other hand, again, we have to do a little bit more digging. But throughout history, Nineveh is a well-known city. Now, how is it well-known? How are the Ninevites, how is the city of Nineveh known? What, we do, what do we know about these people? Well, Nineveh, was a part of the empire. Now, hang with me. I know I'm talking about a lot of history now, and like, okay, what's the point of this? Just hang in there because this means a lot whenever we're going to get to verse 3 when Jonah runs. I mean, why does he run? So pay attention to this material here. So Nineveh was a part of the empire known as Assyria. Assyria in the ancient world was one of the most powerful nations there was. 
They were a very powerful nation. They reigned for, I think, oh, a little over a thousand years, I believe, if I remember right. They were the world power for that long. They reigned the known world. They were the world power for over a thousand years. But not only were they the world power, not only were they a great nation, but they were also an especially wicked or brutal people. Kind of goes along with being a world power, especially in the, the ancient world. This is also the city that would later on come into the northern kingdom of Israel, attack it, lay waste to it, and they would take captive some of the residents of the northern kingdom. Now, they haven't done that yet. This is after Jonah's day that they would come in and attack the city, lay waste to it, and take people away. Currently, though, they're just breathing threats down the northern kingdom's necks. And they are exacting or they are requiring a a heavy tribute from them. So basically, hey, you give us so much money and we won't come and lay waste to your city. It's pretty much what's going on in Jonah's day. And so the original readers would have been thinking about that as they read about Nineveh. Now I want to just talk about some of their brutality because it is horrific. I mean, these people were horrifically brutal. Most historians say that even for their day, they were unusually brutal. Now I'm going to read from a pass or a paragraph from Keller's book that I was talking about a moment ago. He describes some of their brutality. I just want you to get a, a picture of what these people were like. Remember, this is where Jonah's being called to. So think about that for a moment. So Timothy Keller, he writes in his book talking about the, the brutality, the, the wickedness of, a, of Assyria and of Nineveh. He says this, Assyria was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. Assyrian kings often recorded the results of their military victories, gloating over whole plains littered with corpses and cities burned completely to the ground. The emperor, Shalamanzer III, is well known for depicting torture, dismembering, and decapitations of enemies in grisly detail on large stone relief panels. These were most likely have been displayed in their city, like this art form. Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. After after capturing enemies, the Assyrians would would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm and hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched out their bodies with ropes so they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents alive. Those who survived the destruction of their cities were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. The Assyrians have been called a terrorist state. 
That's just some of it. That's just some of the, the brutality, some of the, the torture, some of their, their military ways that they had. I mean, you could, you could do research on these people and find a whole lot more. So they were a great nation, very powerful, the world power in Jonah's day. They were wicked, they were evil people, they were a brutal people. They were already breathing threats down the, the Israelite nation, in the north anyways, and they would later on attack that city and take its people captive. Now I want you to also notice that Jonah is called to go to Nineveh. He's not just called to prophesy against it in his own hometown. He's called to go there. Arise and go to Nineveh. This is unprecedented because before Jonah, no prophet has ever been called to go to a foreign nation. I mean, yes, there have been prophets before Jonah that spoke against Gentile foreign nations, non-Jewish nations, but they never actually went to the nation. So Jonah's mission is very odd indeed. He's going to a wicked nation, you know, a horrifically brutal nation. He's going to a a Gentile nation, and he's called to, to actually go there in their presence. And Nineveh is also the capital at this time of Assyria. So you put all of those things together that we just mentioned, and the original readers of this book would have already have been scratching their heads, wondering, okay, God, what the heck are you doing? You know, why are you sending one of your prophets to these foreign, wicked people. So th these are the, the Ninevites that Jonah is being called to, to go and to call out against because of their, their wickedness. God says that it has risen up before him, which I think is a very fitting description if you think about what we just said. Their evil has risen up before God. It has piled up before Him. Now we come to verse 3. And in light of what we just said, you know, no wonder Jonah hears this word from God and he runs. <laughs> I mean, no wonder he doesn't want to go. No wonder he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. No wonder he doesn't want to go preach to these people. They're wicked. They're horrific. They're brutal. They're already breathing threats down my nation, Jonah may be thinking. Why well, don't I want to go preach to these people? Plus, they're, they're Gentiles. But fear isn't the main reason why Jonah doesn't want to go. You know, the main reason why we would think he doesn't want to go, the main reason why we may not have wanted to go, it's not fear. And Jonah tells us that in his own words in, in chapter 4. At the beginning of the chapter where he's, he has just proclaimed to the, the, the Word of God to the Ninevites, say repent, he gets angry and then he says this. He says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful 
slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. That's the main reason why Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. It's not because he's afraid. I mean, he may be afraid. But the primary reason is that he does not want God to have mercy on this wicked people. Now think back to what we saw a moment ago in the 2 Kings chapter 14 passage. Remember, Jonah had already witnessed firsthand God's grace on wicked people. It was just His own wicked people. The Israelites. And he had no problem when God had mercy and grace on them. He had no problem with that. When his own people, including Jonah himself, deserved judgment, but God, on the other hand, gave them prosperity. He expanded their borders. He gave them abundance. Jonah had no problem with that. But he does have a problem with God extending grace on these people. You see what Jonah has done here. Think about it. Jonah is a prophet. He's supposed to be God's man. He's supposed to do God's will. He's supposed to speak God's message. He knows a lot about God. I mean, he's been taught and instructed in the ways of God. He knows the law of God. He knows the words of God. But yet Jonah has put God in a box, in his own little comfortable box. Jonah is okay that God shows mercy whenever it fits within the box that he's put him in, right? Jonah's okay when God does something when Jonah can see how good will come from it. But when God acts in a way or makes a decision that Jonah can't really understand or he can't see how anything good can come from it, well, now God is coming out of the box. And Jonah's not okay when God comes out of his own little box. And aren't we guilty of doing the same thing? I mean, don't we tend to put God in our own little pretty, nice, wrapped theological boxes? I mean, we, we know a lot about God. We know that God is sovereign. We know that He is good. You know, the main, some of the main themes that we looked at last week when we were doing the overview. We know these things about God. But what happens whenever God does something that you don't expect Him to do? What happens whenever God puts you in a situation that you may not like and you can't see how any good can come from it? What happens when God takes something from you that is very hard to deal with? What happens whenever God gives you a certain type of sickness that maybe cannot be cured? What happens when He puts you in the hospital with this sickness or this, this cancer or you find out that you're not going to live very much longer or whatever? You know, the, the situations, the, the examples that we could give are many. 
You know, how do we react whenever God comes out of our own little boxes that we have created and we, that we put Him in? You know, we need to remember that God is God. We're not. We may know and understand that He's sovereign. We may know and understand that He's good intellectually. But if you have a problem whenever God does something that you don't expect Him to do or that you can't really see the the good that could come of it and you have a problem with it, you know, have those things really come or have they passed from intellectual knowledge into your heart or have they just stayed there? You remember we talked about last week, this is something that Jonah is struggling with. He knows these things about God. He knows that God is good intellectually, but when God seeks to actually do something good that Jonah doesn't understand, we see that it really hasn't passed very far from just intellectual knowledge. So Jonah is struggling to understand how God can be good in this situation. Now I want you to to notice three other things in verse 3. We see that Jonah flees to this place called Tarshish. It says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Tarshish was believed to be somewhere on the the coast of Spain, which was somewhere around uh, 2,500 to 3,000 miles west of where Jonah was located. Nineveh, on the other hand, was around 550 miles northeast of where Jonah was located. So Jonah, in fleeing to Tarshish, is pretty much going in the opposite direction of where he's supposed to be going. And Tarshish is mentioned three times just in this one verse. It says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. This is just, it, it's, Tarshish is named three times for emphasis. It is very clear that Jonah is not going to Nineveh. He's not going that way. He's going to Tarshish. That's where he's headed. But not only is he fleeing to Tarshish, but he's fleeing away from the presence of the Lord. That's the second thing I want you to notice there. So not only does he flee to Tarshish, but he flees from the presence of the Lord. And that is seen twice here in this one verse. You see it there at the first part of verse 3. It says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And then again at the the last part of the verse where it says, away from the presence of the Lord. Now this doesn't just merely mean that Jonah is trying to escape to some place where God is not. Again, remember, Jonah's a prophet. He knows that he cannot ultimately escape from the presence of God. He knows that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But this word presence here, it literally means face. So Jonah is fleeing from the face of God. Now what does that mean? 
Jonah is trying to escape the place where God has given him this mission. Jonah is trying to escape the place where God has called him to go. This this area where God has called to Jonah, where He has commissioned him to go. Or as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, he says, Jonah is fleeing from the felt presence of God. He is fleeing from that place where he feels God's call most. That's what he's trying to get away from. And again, we can, we can relate to this, you know, trying to flee the presence of God in that way. You know, if God calls you to a difficult spot, I mean, you know you can't get away from God. You know you can't get away from whatever it is He may have commissioned you to do. But you can kind of turn your face away from it. You can kind of, you know, turn your back on it and just say, no, I don't want to do that. And you can flee from God in that way. The third thing that I want you to notice, the the two words went down. We're told twice that Jonah goes down. First, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Then once he gets there, he pays the fare or the, the amount to, to have these sailors take him to Tarshish. And then again it says, and he went down into it. I don't think that these words that the author uses are just a coincidence. I think he purposefully uses these words describing what Jonah is doing. He went down to Tarshish, or excuse me, he went down to to Joppa and then he went down into the ship. As you think about the storyline that we're going to be following, for the first two chapters anyway, Jonah is going to continue to find himself just going further down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. He goes down into the sea when he's thrown overboard. And then finally he goes down into the belly of the fish where he finally finds himself, figuratively speaking, in his place of rock bottomness. You know, he finally reaches rock bottom whenever he find, when he is swallowed by the fish and he's in this place of Sheol, as he, as he calls it. So I think what the author is describing for us here is what disobedience or sin always leads to. Although sin or although disobedience to God may promise the heights, the high places, it can only take you into the depths. That's true of all sin. That's true of all disobedience to God. Jonah is being disobedient here as he runs from God. He is in sin right now as he disobeys God, as he flees the face of God. And his sin is taking him downward. And finally, he's going to hit rock bottom where he's going to call out to God and God is going to show mercy upon Jonah as we're going to see whenever we continue in the story. So God is going to pursue Jonah. 
He's going to continue to pursue him as he flees, as he goes down to to Joppa, as he goes down into the ship, as he goes down into the sea, as he goes down into the belly of the fish. God is going to continually pursue this man. This rebellious, this stubborn prophet, God is going to continue to pursue him and he's going to continue to show his mercy, his grace, and his steadfast love on him. Why? Why does God do this? I mean, as we read in the story, we're going to continually just feel, you know, God, why don't you just give up on this guy? Why don't you just commission somebody else? I mean, there's more prophets to be found. Just pick somebody else. Jonah's gone. Just let him do what he's going to do and you can get somebody else. Well, that's not who God is. God is the pursuing God. He is a God who continually shows mercy, grace, and steadfast love upon a stubborn prophet And He's a God who continually shows these things on a stubborn people, which includes all of us. Because that theme, you know, God's pursuit of Jonah, is not only found here, or the pursuit of people, the pursuit of rebellious sinners, it's not only found here, but that's found throughout the whole Bible. When you think about in the very beginning when Adam and Eve, when they turned away from God, whenever they chose sin when they chose disobedience rather than obedience to God. Who took the initiative to pursue them? God did. They hid in the garden and God called out to them, where are you? Who made the initiative whenever we see the covenant made with Abraham? God does. God pursues Abraham. God is the one who initiates the covenant. And it's that way throughout the whole storyline of the Bible. God is always the one doing the initiating. He is always the one doing the pursuing. And all of this reaches its climax in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. When God pursues His wicked people in His Son. And He gives His life for them. You know, He pursues His people, He pursues you to that degree. We are just like Jonah. And we are just like the other rebellious and sinful people who run from the face of God and would much rather have sin than God. But thanks be to Him that He doesn't leave us in that state. He pursues us. He calls out to us. And He saves you by the gospel of His Son. If you are a Christian this morning, it's because God pursued you. Not because you pursued God. If you think you took the initiative in your relationship with God, you are wrong. Plain and simple. God pursued you in His Son. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. But God made you alive. God pursued you. And He continually pursues, even today. So if you are not a Christian this morning, God is pursuing you. I mean, it's no mistake that you're here this morning. 
that you're hearing His Word. It's no mistake that you walk in this church building every Sunday. God is continually pursuing you in His Word through the gospel of His Son. And through that gospel, as we're going to see finally in the life of Jonah throughout this story, there's steadfast love to be found. There's new life to be found. There's repentance to be found. So let us learn from this example of Jonah that as he runs, he just continually spirals downward. Father, we come before you and we thank you for who you are. As we, as we see here in this story, yet again, in the biblical storyline, that you are a God who pursues a wicked and rebellious people. Lord, if it was left up to us, we would... We would be lost in our sin. We would have no hope. There would be no hope without you coming from heaven and seeking your bride, seeking your people in your Son. Oh Lord, we tend to think that we understand you completely, like Jonah thought that he did. But you are a God of infinite and everlasting wisdom and goodness, and grace, and steadfast love, abounding in it. There is no way that we can wrap our minds around it. There's no way that you can be put into a box of expectations or thinking that you're going to react in just certain ways. Lord, you continually do what we would not expect. Help us to learn continually from this story. May you continually mold and shape our hearts, our minds, as we go through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.